Hi, welcome to another episode of The Adoption Files. I'm your host, Andy Stanley. Today, I have joining me Paige Strickland. She is the author of two books and a fellow adoptee, and Renee Gellin, who is a mother and one of the founders of Saving Our Sisters. So thank you both so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Oh, you're welcome. We are going to be talking about something a little bit different. I, The focus of the podcast is on the laws that govern adoption and how that impacts the you know people who are involved in the adoption process, primarily adoptees. But um, I've also spoken with Renee before, and she is a mother. Uh, so today we're going to talk about the different kinds of adoption that are common primarily in the United States, but in other places as well, because I've realized in having conversations with people that I don't think a lot of the public actually understands what adoption really is, that there are different forms of adoption that impact us in different ways. And I, you know, just what the laws are around those kinds of adoption. So we're going to talk about a bunch of different kinds today. And then hopefully in the future, I'll be talking one-on-one -on -one with different people who have some expertise or some experience with these different kinds of adoption. I, so I'll just kind of run down a list and then we can talk about them. So there's plenary adoption. There's kinship adoption. There is step-parent adoption, foster to adopt. There is international and domestic adoption, transracial, same race, single parent, uh, couples, whether straight or same sex. There uh, are closed, semi-open and open adoptions, late discovery, Embryo adoptions, which I don't think a lot of people have ever heard of. There are donor-conceived people who have a social parent, but may also have an adoptive parent. And then there is a form of adoption that has come up in the news recently that is a Muslim form of what is more guardianship than adoption really called kafala and i apologize if i am not pronouncing that correctly i don't speak arabic <laughs> so let's just start with plenary adoption were either of you familiar with that term plenary adoption i was not this is renee i'm not i was not yeah okay so plenary adoption is described as it's it's described as an alternate form of adoption, but it is the most common form of adoption in the United States. And it is a form of adoption that terminates the relationship between parent and child. Now, I think we could argue that it may legally terminate parental rights, but I question whether you can terminate a relationship between two or you know more because we have more than one parent biologically related people and do you ladies have thoughts on that i think that's the thing you do by choice and the thing is 
an adoptee typically has no choice. So. I agree. I think, I don't know how you would terminate a relationship other than, like you said, choosing to do that, right? Like, how, how do you do that in the, without adoption in the pic, in the picture, right? Yeah. If you're just like, well, I don't want to talk to that person anymore, or they're driving me nuts. I can't, I can't, I've got to unfriend them or whatever, you know, you, that's a choice that you make for whatever reason, but I don't think there's a guarantee that that's going to happen if you adopt, you know, that that's what reunion is. Yeah. It never really, it maybe it was temporarily terminated, but it wasn't a mutual choice. Yeah, that's true. It's it's like a forced estrangement between mm-hmm. family members and it's codified into law so that once that adoption, once plenary adoption occurs, the parents, you know, parent or parents and extended family no longer have a legal right to contact or relationship with the adoptee. You are considered under the law as no longer being related to those people. You now have a new birth certificate created that lists you as born to your adoptive parents. And depending on the state this occurs in, the adoptive parents have the option of listing their hometown as the place where you were born. They can omit your ethnicity from your birth certificate. There are are different criteria that the adoptive parents have the power to basically change the facts surrounding your birth. And you, in the majority of the states in this country, you have no right to that original birth certificate, even when you become an adult. Yeah. Which is so crazy. It's, yeah, it's stupid. Yeah, it's just stupid. It just, it seems like a crazy system. And then you have, now, plenary adoption generally occurs in infant adoptions, but it's not the only form of adoption that erases and seals off a person's original identity. Another thing a lot of people are unaware of is that many states have a mechanism that allow adoptive parents to retain the adoptee's original birth certificate. Hmm. But I don't think, I mean, Renee, you're very familiar with what parents are not told. Do you think that that's a part of the law that first parents and adoptive parents are even told about? I think that um, adoptive parents are definitely informed on that because they are actually a party of the court case after the uh, termination of parental rights or TPR is handled, right? So they, um, you know, I talk about this a lot that the people working in the adoption industry 
are in the middle and they hold all the cards. They know the before process, which is how to get that mother to relinquish. And then they also know the after process, which is how to get the rights terminated, how to get everything finalized, right? They're two kind of separate pieces of the puzzle. Um, and they're the ones that are in the middle pulling all of the, you know, the strings and understanding exactly what happens next. And absolutely, I think that, you know, we talk about this a lot, that moms need to be making informed decisions. From my perspective, personally, I had zero information. I had no idea my, my child's birth certificate was going to be sealed and that whether he was 18 or 80, he would never be able to get it unless he went to court. And I gave permission. Those are the exact laws in Florida today. He has to find me. I have to give permission. And then he has to go to court and ask for it. So they recently took out the adoptive parent permission piece um, over the last few years. So that has been removed, thankfully. Um, but with sealed original birth certificates, it's almost like he's being forced or he will be forced to go through DNA if he decides to reach out first. Um, you know, so it's, I think, you know, and, and most moms today that we, um, you know, have come to SOS, they do not know the birth certificate will be sealed. They have no information on that at all. None. So they are absolutely not informed. I think adoptive parents are um, just because of the process. Okay. So that's, that's kind of dismaying <laughs> because these people are making a, a conscious decision to deny someone that they claim that they love. You know, it's common to hear narratives like, I knew you were mine the moment I laid eyes on you. Yeah. At whatever, and mm -hmm. so, yeah. So now then, uh, Paige, you brought up kinship adoption. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with the process for kinship adoption? Not really, because it's I don't have any direct experience with it. Um, so I think, you know, kinship adoption is basically, you know, what it sounds like. It's mm -hmm. where someone in the family is willing and able to care for a child that needs to be cared for. And it's the form of care that used to be most common in this country prior to, I believe it's like 1930. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. or one post-World War One. Yeah, it was it was the norm for a family member to care for a child mm -hmm. if, you know, born into the family. And today, because when you adopt, they seal records, kinship adoptions can occur where the adoptee knows who their family members are and they grow up knowing you know right. my grandparents or this is my aunt and my uncle <laughs> they grow up with knowledge of who their parents are they know who their family members are then there are other forms of kinship adoption that because of the closed nature they're not told and so they grow up unaware of the fact that this is their grandparent or this is their uncle they they have no idea the circumstances of right what brought them there they just may know that they're adopted mm -hmm. but not be told at all 
I've talked to a kinship adoptee who was told she was adopted, but was not told that she had been adopted by relatives. So she grew up very confused. Yeah. <laughs> that, that some of these people looked so much like her. Yeah. And so much like her, but she was told that she was an ad adoptee. Yeah. And the laws applied to her the same way that they apply to so many adoptees. She was not allowed to right. receive a copy of her original birth certificate. Yeah. So she found out when a relative got angry at a family event. Yeah. And yes. disclosed her status. So fun way to find out. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I went back in the eighties when I was going to an adoption support group, if you will. Um, when I was starting my search, um, there was a guy in our group that didn't know that he knew he was adopted and he kept saying, well, if I'm adopted, why do I look so much like you? <laughs> and it turned out his parents had adopted him and his birth mother was raised. They were raised as brother and sister because she was so young when she had him. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I've heard that before too. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, as an adult, then his, his reason for being at the group meeting was just to kind of, cause he had just out like, it's not even being a late discovery. It's like, cause he knew he was adopted, but he didn't know all this time that, you know, the, the person that was say fixing him a sandwich or playing games with him wasn't really his big sister. Oh, wow. That's rough. I, yeah. I mean, I could see how that would have some aspects of the late yeah. discovery, you know, the betrayal and the lies. Yeah. And I think it was after somebody passed away in the family, the truth came out. I think that was, it was so long ago when I heard his story, but I think that was how that, that happened. So, you know, he knows now and he knew, he knows who his mother slash sister is, <laughs> you know, but yeah, it just took him a while to kind of wrap his head around all that. Well, yeah. Cause you're going to, you're going to, you can't help but go back over every interaction you had. Well, like a three-year-old, cause they aren't going to comprehend hardly anything, but at some point, yeah, I had a student like that. He was adopted by his grandparents because his mom was a drug addict and, um, they, they weren't taking care of him. Right. And he was a victim of sh shaken baby syndrome mm. because they they weren't being you know they weren't caring for the baby right so the grandparents got him but as he got old enough himself to understand they kept telling him more and more so that he didn't get hit with a big crazy truth you know when he was like 14 right well, and that whole and then you know the whole identity piece of it especially at that age right you talk yeah. about that's what can generally happen when you have all those secrets you know yeah. that story you shared i just it just is a little shocking that he stayed in the family, mm -hmm. but yet they couldn't just raise and him. And would have been, yeah, in the 50s. He grew up in the 50s. Wow. Yeah. Well, and that brings part that I know that you know quite a bit about, Renee, and that's about the money. 
Now, grandparent adoption or grandparent guardianship of children, you have grandchildren is becoming more and more common, unfortunately. Yeah. Because of the yeah. impact that drugs is having yeah. on our society. Yeah. So I know more and more and more grandparents who are caring for grandchildren or great grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And because of the way that the laws are structured around foster care and adoption, and the fact that it's all about the money for the state and for the federal government, in most states, when a grandparent raises a grandchild, they do not qualify for any financial assistance from the state or from the federal government. But if you are adopting as a stranger, as a non on biological Yeah, I can speak English. I've been doing it. <laughs> uh, if you are if you are taking care of a child that is your grandchild, nothing. If you are taking care of a non-related person, there's money. And so foster to adopt. So mm -hmm. Renee, you know a lot about what happens with, because the next one I wanted to talk about is foster to adoption and the incentives that are given to yeah. adopt through. So you know a lot more about it, Renee. So I'm going to let you talk on that for a few minutes. Yeah, that whole foster thing. You know, if anybody has any questions and we could, maybe you can put, put a link up with your podcast too that people can refer to. We can share that link, but it's all about Title IV funding. It's included actually in our social security program, believe it or not. Um, and it's all tied to, it's, it's Title IV, which is adoption and incentive payments. And there is literally verbiage in there that states that they, the state collect federal revenue for each child that they take into care. So hence the, the money train, right? Mm -hmm. And the money train kind of ends either when an adoption happens or the child is reunited. So, you know, their goal, and, and when an adoption happens, they actually collect money for that scenario as well. So it's just a continual money train. And so reunification, you know, they tout reunification a lot, right? Where they say, this is our goal. This is what we want to do. But in reality, when you look at it and you hear so many horror stories and, you know, the same thing I say with, with, you know, infant adoption is that one bad or one unnecessary adoption is just one too many. One bad story with uh, the states taking kids into care is also too many. We shouldn't be having that. This should not happen. So, you know, we covered a little bit about that this in the cub retreat this past weekend and you know a lot of um social workers are not educated on trauma it doesn't fall into their material and so that is something that is skipped over and really not acknowledged you know we talk about this in the adoption community all the time that that trauma doesn't exist but the money train here is is the sole you know fuel behind all of this and so it's so frustrating that it's just all about the money, private adoption, foster to adopt, 
anywhere that the state is involved. You know, it's just, it's very, very frustrating. Yeah, there's so much money. There's so much, so money. much money, you know, and they're offering, they offer loans. You can get loans to adopt. You can get incentives from the state to adopt. I, adoption agencies often have a fundraising arm where they will assist prospective adoptive parents in raising money. So they will sell programs to hopeful adoptive parents so that the parents can raise the money that they need to, you know, pay fees. That's, they call it paying fees. They don't call it purchasing a child, <laughs> but they, they get money all the way around. They sell these programs and then they help place a child and they make money there. And then the way the laws are often structured is that if you as an adult adoptee wish to get any information, including non-identifying information about your adoption, you must then pay the adoption agency that now contracts with your state for adoptee support services. Yeah. And you can pay anyway, anywhere from 30 to $1,000 to have the adoption agency once again profit off of your adoption. And that's separate from court fees and things that you might have to pay and, you know, fees for your original birth certificate if they decide to give you a copy of it. Oh. It's this huge, like you say, it's a money train. It's just a huge scam and the commodity are the children. Yeah. And, and it's disgusting. It's just no one should have to pay. You know, that's one of the things that I started with SOS, like, and, and, you know, my initial thing when I came out was I was going to help with searching. Right. So I connected with a search angel. She said, I'm going to show you this, but I'm going to only show you this. If you promise never to charge anyone. And I said, I would never, everybody that's been affected by this has paid so much, you know, adoptees who don't have a choice. And then moms who usually are not informed, they're very rarely are they making a completely informed decision, are now charged again, you know, when they're the ones already living that loss. And it's just taking advantage over and over again. It's mm. very, very, very frustrating. Yeah. And so another aspect of when, you know, and people will argue would you rather that the children be left in, in foster care? Okay, nobody is advocating for children to be mistreated. Nobody is advocating for children to be uh, you know, abandoned. That is not what the conversation is about, okay? So when you foster to adopt, rather than there being a mechanism where you can provide a safe space for a child to grow without completely erasing their identity and sealing their records. When you foster to adopt, you often have the child in your home prior to adopting them. 
And you, again, as the adoptive parents have the option of retaining the child's original birth certificate, keep in mind that many of these children have, they have been with their parents for sometimes years before they're removed. They know extended family members, they know their name, and now you're asking them in a courtroom, because we like to do this farce of a courtroom performance, where we ask a child as young as three if they want to be adopted. They have no concept of the actual legal ramifications of doing that. Of course they want parents. Of course they want people to take care of them. Of course they want to feel safe. Of course they want to feel loved. Who doesn't? But there's a power differential there. And we don't allow children to enter, we don't allow people to enter into legal contracts until they're 18. But we're asking a five-year-old or an 11-year-old or even a 15-year-old, do you want to be adopted? Do you want to change your name forever? Do you want your birth certificate to reflect somebody else's names as your parents? Do you want to never be able to access a copy of your original birth certificate again? Do they ask that part? Of course not. not. Oh, the, they leave it as, do you want to be adopted? Right. Yeah. And, and the, you know, think through the other, the rest of it. Yeah. Can the child even comprehend all of that? Right. Right. The kid usually isn't, even a smart one isn't savvy enough to really because they don't have the life experience to understand the full effects and the full outcome. And most people in the public don't understand that that's what they're agreeing to. They're agreeing to, in most states, a lifelong denial of access to their own records, their own identity. And I've talked to former foster kids who have said, I knew my name. Mm -hmm. I knew, I knew where my grandparents lived. Yeah. yeah. I, but, but then I was adopted and I was supposed to answer to this new name because the adoptive parents in this case changed the person's first name as well. Yeah. Because the adoptive parents thought that it would be better for the child to have a clean, fresh start. And so they took a nine-year-old and said, this is not your name anymore. This is your name. We are your family. These people no longer exist for you. And they said they didn't say a word to their foster, to their new adoptive parents about it because they were too scared. Yeah, they didn't know. Yeah. So there's, you know, most people don't realize. Yeah. And, and so then this, they the don't realize that too, really talk does about be adopted, but they don't necessarily know all the ramifications that are going to go on. They don't want to say anything because they don't want to have it reversed. They, they don't want to have the, the stuff they do want reversed on them. Yeah. And for a lot of these kids, by the time you are actually declared eligible to be adopted from foster care, depending on the state, and this is very dependent on the state and it's very dependent on your color. 
and your economic status. Okay. So in many places, by the time you're declared eligible for adoption, you have been through some extremely traumatic experiences with your family and it's a relief for you to find a safe place. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of former foster youth who are adopted do see adoption as, as the better thing. And I understand that. So I'm not trying to discount that at all. I would never try to tell somebody, you know, your experience was not what it was. I, it's that this is to educate the general public, that this is what we're asking people to do. We're asking them to agree to a complete legal, like obliteration of their right to their own identity. And I don't know, what do you ladies like, think? It's like witness protection or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I was just thinking that it's, you know what it's, it's, again, we come back to this informed consent, right? So it's the same type of scenario with a relinquishing mother, right? Now you're talking about it with a child and are they really getting informed consent? Do they really understand, to your point, Andy, right? The the, the ramifications of what ad adopted actually means, that it means stealing your records, that it means you not being able to get to them maybe ever again in your life. And exactly that, you know, it's the, everyone needs to be educated on this process and there needs to be more truth and transparency, which is I think exactly what you're trying to do here and kind of delve into all of these different pieces of, and, and methods of adoption. Yeah, I just, people are going to, to make these huge decisions. There should be some understanding of the, the long-term impact and the long-term consequences. And somebody said to me once that uh, adoption is a failed social experiment because people don't realize that what we consider adoption today hasn't been around for really that long in the scheme of things. You mm -hmm. know, this is really kicked off after World War II. So it's been less than a hundred years. I think California was the first state to seal original birth certificates after adoption. And that was in like 1934 or 1935 in the middle of the depression. <laughs> it was like in the midst of the depression, they decided we're gonna seal birth certificates. And I think it was California was the first state to do that. So congratulations to such a progressive state that is still one of the worst states in the country oh. for adoptees. Renee is doing research, everybody. I am. I'm just doing a quick search. So Minnesota actually was the first state to oh. seal okay. and make court adoption records unavailable to the I knew that because I lived there 11 years before this. And so when I heard that, I, it connected. But oh, California became the first state to seal and make an adoptee's original birth record unavailable except by court order. Okay, so that's the distinction. All right, because it's still like that here. You still have to get the court to sign off on receiving a copy of your original. And California is also one of the um, biggest states for anonymous donor conception as well and surrogacy because it's big bucks, lots and lots of money. So then- 
Another form of adoption that a lot of people just don't think about is step-parent adoption. And the reason I bring this up is several reasons. One is it works the same way as plenary adoption at the point at which the step-parent adopts the child. A new birth certificate may be issued as if the person was born to the step-parent. For example, my mother, when I was trying to find my parents, my mother's birth certificate, I sent away and got a copy of it. And I thought my grandfather was her stepfather because he was listed on her birth certificate as her father, but he wasn't her father. And I found out because one of my uncles really resented having to tell people that they had the same father. So, so, so he told me, but she's not, we, she's not, she's only my half sister. So uh, that is when I found out that in most places in the United States, once a step parent adopts a stepchild, that child their original parent, whichever one gives up their parental rights, is no longer on their birth certificate. And depending mm -hmm. on the state that you live in, you have no right to request a copy of your original, like to receive one. You can right. request it all day long, but they'll just ignore you. Right. And again, they'll often ask a child if they agree. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think some of that too may be, may be innocent too. And in a sense, just because of the fact that people don't understand all the ramifications of that, not everybody, not everybody gets the ceiling of the birth certificate. They may get that it's changed, right? But then they may not be aware that it's sealed too. And in, to, in some of those cases, right? I think in a stranger adoption, I think that they are fully informed. I think they know that birth certificate is going to be sealed. And I'm talking about they being the adoptive parents or the prospective adoptive parents. But I think, you know, in this scenario with the, you know, the kinship or a step parent, it's considered kind of family. Um, so they may not be. Because um, it's not that stranger adoption. It's not, it's just, it's, I think it may be treated differently and they may not be aware of everything like most of society is not right yeah well and i also this is a pet peeve of mine and i don't know Paige, if you feel the same way mm -hmm. uh, i have had people who are step-parent adoptees mm -hmm. who will tell me that they don't understand why i have any problems with my adoption because they're adopted and they're fine and they don't have any issues and they think that it's great and adoptees should just basically shut up and get over themselves and I think it's not the same thing they at least have access to one biological parent if not they, the knowledge of who the other one was at some point in their life yeah if the, if the the biological parent they live with, you know, is honest with them and talks to them about things and why things happened the way they did. But yeah, that doesn't always happen. 
But you're still growing up with at least one of your parents. Yeah, you're going to have some form of mirroring and some form of, I look like so-and-so, at least on one side of the family. And if you have, if your parent and step-parent have children together, you have Mm -hmm. siblings that you grow up with. Right. They're like half siblings, but yeah, you have that and you could look very much like them. Yeah. And have traits in common and interests in common. You have three together. Often, even in step-parent adoptions, uh, the original parent still has visitation Mm -hmm. or the grandparents may have visitation. You may still have contact with other siblings that you might have through that parent Mm because they may have been married before and have other kids or just have other kids. (laughs) And you still have, you know, you generally stay in your community. So, you know, in general, I know there are exceptions, but in general, you know, you're not giving up your language, your culture, your country. Yeah, definitely not that. Yeah. So it's not the same. I'm sorry. You can have bad experiences with a step-parent. Not going to deny that at all, but it's not the same as being raised by strangers. A total mystery with no answers and no truth at all. Yeah. And chances are, you know, even with your birth certificate changed as a step-parent adoptee, like my mother still knew who her father was. Yeah. She knew where he was born. She knew who her relatives were. Yeah. The heritage and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And some people, I guess, are, you know, they'd be content with, well, at least I know this much, so I'm good. You know, some people would be, well, I still have missing information. That's not acceptable. It just, that's just sort of a spectrum of feelings that people have, but. Yeah. And I don't think there's this much mystery either. Like, did my parents love me? Did they not love me? Did they, you know, give me up because they had to, or because they wanted to, or. They might know the reason why they ended up in a step-parent adoption situation. Yeah. They knew one parent, say, was a criminal or an addict or something, and it busted up the marriage, and the other parent moved on and had custody of the kid. and Or passed away. Or passed away. That's another one, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of different reasons, but I don't think there's usually as much mystery. And this is not counting, like, NPEs. There are people who are step-parent adoptees who are also NPEs because they're raised from a very young age to believe that their step-parent is their parent. Right. You know, and then they find out through a DNA test or, you know, there are other reasons people find out they're an MPE, but non-parent expected. I think that's what MPE is. That's, I think so. Non-parent event, I think it is, where they do the because I just came from the retreat where, <laughs> okay. you know, Kara Rubenstein was there and, and she was talking about that. And it's just that whole serious identity thing that happens when that happens, you know, mm-hmm. it's just a, it's a crisis. Who, wait, what, who am I, you know? And it's, it's kind of world rocking. Yeah, I definitely think so. And then another form, I'm trying to make it through our list and not keep you ladies all day long. <laughs> so then we have international 
adoption versus domestic adoption. And I'm an international adoptee. I think Paige, you're a domestic adoptee. I'm domestic. Yeah. Okay. And then Renee, your son. He's domestic. Domestic. Okay. So the, so the laws governing international and domestic adoption are different. You're dealing with the country where you were born and their laws and then mm-hmm. you're dealing with immigration laws for the country that your parents, your adoptive parents take you to. So there are often additional steps that you have to go through. And as an adoptee, it's unlikely that you were raised being told about what the laws were governing your adoption. So it's often a pretty harrowing process to figure out how to navigate that for a domestic adoptee. And then mm-hmm. when you take an international adoptee and factor in that the their country of origin may not speak the same language that they grew up right. in. So they may not even know how to speak the language of their home country. Yeah. And the laws in their home country may be very different from what they're used to where they grew up. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, because of the money thing and the length of time it takes to adopt, people who adopt internationally, and I, this is not everyone, so if you get your panties in a twist over what I'm going to say next, I don't really care that much, but <laughs> often you are adopting from a foreign country for some or all of the following reasons. It's cheaper. And you have and you have Googled looking for the cheap countries to adopt from. You have an ethnocentric, savioristic, racial attitude towards thinking that you are superior to the people in that country. And so, of course, anybody that you adopt and bring here is going to be tremendously blessed by how fabulous you are. And it's faster because the laws in that country are easier for you to navigate. And often the country that you're adopting from internationally uh, is a poor country or a country where there's a lot of corruption. I I can think of a number- There are a lot available. Yeah, I can think of a number of people who were adopted from African and Latin American countries where there was a lot of corruption and fraud involved. They actually had parents and extended family in their countries of origin who did not understand that they were being removed forever and that they would not be able to get their child back. Yeah, and there are adoptees who were actually sold by doctors and nurses. That's Guatemala. I met Tyler Graff, who was actually that. He went back reunited with his family who they told the doctor and and the nurses told them that he was dead and he was not and he went back and he has met them stayed with them has a relationship with them and that is that is it and you know he was asking the nurses like how did you do that like you know, how could you, you know, this is going on, you know, that it's wrong, you know, I was not dead. And they were literally in fear for their lives, because the government was involved in that. 
So, you know, there's many, and, and the other scenario is there's crisis, right? When the earthquake in Haiti came up. Oh, yeah. They yeah. They swoop. And oh, yeah. Sri Lanka as well after the tsunami. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And now Ukraine, right? We already see that. You know what's happening. Gonna... And uh, I just finished reading Catherine Joyce's book, The Child Catchers, that delves into all of that and um, delves deep into the the religious aspect of adoption. If you ever want a good read, go check that out. Um, I think it's it was published in 2014. <laughs> it was infuriating. I, I caught myself saying a lot of words <laughs> that I can't say here. Um, when the leaders in that movement of adoption and, and you know, pushing that initiative forward mm -hmm. um, were so blatant, so blatant. And it was so obvious that they knew that and they know that no one is, is going to touch them because it's all under the guise of saving children and saving babies when it's actually, you know, a multi-billion dollar industry year over year. I mean, it's just, uh. Well, and I was adopted overseas because my parents were denied in the United States. Oh. So that's how my adoption overseas came about. Um, I And then the domestic side of it, a lot of times, like, so we're, you know, we're older people and people like to say, it's not like that anymore. But the same laws that were on the books for most of our experiences are still on the books now mm -hmm. for adoptions taking place today, or they've only been slightly modified. Mostly, I think, to create added layers of confusion for adoptees attempting to get information, you know, the registries and the, you know, you need permission from your adoptive parents and your first parents and, uh, or they can only be contacted in person by the representative from the state. So if the representative can't find your parent, because I don't know, they moved, you then they won't give you the information or you've got to go before a judge and give a compelling reason, but it's not spelled out in the law what that compelling reason is. Right. Yeah. So as a domestic adoptee, Paige, what was mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on domestic adoption, especially now with SCOTUS quoting the NIH memo on domestic infant supply? Yeah. Um I think it's a a thing that there are there are instances where it's a necessary evil but if it can be avoided it should be avoided if you can just keep original families together in the first place yeah that would be a probably a better solution you know and provide the counseling provide the counseling for the original families so that they can work out ways to stay together and figure out you know how can we make this work? Yeah. Well, and you what know. do you think about and again, the... they take advantage of these young young kids, typically girls, you know, and that you know, well, what do, about your education and your friends and your you know all these things? Well, 
I don't know. I mean, I don't have a bunch of solutions, but I, I think things could be worked out. Some kind of support system needs to be in place. So, cause I get, you know, you're, you're young and you want to get your education because that is the only way to get something better than a Walmart job. You know, uh, you, you've got to in some kind of a way and have a skill to earn so you can be self-sufficient, but that doesn't mean you should be, have your kid taken away from you. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, yeah. I totally agree. I have a solution. It's, it's SOS's methodology of, you know, informing, supporting, mm -hmm. and, you know, putting all of that out there and let's face it, you know, to your point, they, they've taken away this reproductive option. It is not a parenting option, right? So again, two separate decisions that are made. One is mm -hmm. to carry a pregnancy and the other is to parent. Um, and those two things really don't go hand in hand, but the bottom line is, is that our social system here is broken. You know, people say, oh, there are resources out there. There are resources out there. Let me tell you, we're here, we're doing this day in and day out. There are not resources. Yeah. yeah. Housing yeah. lists are three years long. You know, when a mom is pregnant, she doesn't have three years. Right. And she's homeless. She doesn't have three years. And the other thing is, you know, everybody then says, go to the churches. The churches have these funds and they have all of this and they actually, they don't, you know, they're out. And so they're in it too. What did you say, Paige? Sorry. They're in it for the profit too. Yeah. Well, and then that whole education on what adoption really means right mm -hmm. and how it affects the lifelong impacts and effects are just not the focus of that movement and so yeah. the education piece is super key um to that so well and i think that there's also this disconnect uh, between the idea that to help a child you must remove the child from their family you can help a family right and, yeah. and like you said, we don't have the social supports, not just for a person who is pregnant at that moment of pregnancy. We don't have affordable childcare in this country. Agreed. Agreed. We do not have employee buy-in to support parents in the workplace. But we have adoption incentives. Yeah, I know. Companies. Employees adoption incentives and give them time off to adopt. But we will we will badger a person if they have to go home because their child is sick. Yeah, that's yeah. We so we don't we don't provide employment supports. We don't provide adequate job training and opportunities to people. We don't have adequate housing. And then we treat children like they're interchangeable. Like people are literally interchangeable units that can just be plugged in wherever. You can always just adopt. You can always just give your child up for adoption. Don't even worry about it. It's not a big deal. It's, it's just a crazy mindset in my opinion. So then we have another um, kind of adoption that I think became very prevalent uh, after what maybe 
1950 with the Korean adoptees, we have transracial adoption, which I think is, it goes back farther than that actually. Right now, the Indian Child Welfare Act is up for appeal with the Supreme Court, which is absolutely horrifying that it might be overturned. Yeah. So, you know, we can go back as far as the foundation of this country when Native American children were were forcibly removed from their families and placed with white settler families or put into residential homes. And then we have the post-Korean War when a lot of American service members fathered children and South Korea began exporting children basically and we have Mm -hmm. the post-vietnam war when american service members fathered children and there was a push to adopt vietnamese children and then we had you know the whole uh efforts by the predominantly white christian american church to prove to everyone how non-racist and fabulous they are so transracial adoption, I think there should be more attention paid to it because I think it's tied into the policing of families mm-hmm. and the the lack of access to resources in marginalized groups and the feeding off of the chaos and in other countries and the belief that we're just so much better here that, of course... There's a group like the Gospel Adoption Initiative or something like that, that actually uh, describes it as going from the squalor to the states. So we're helping children by removing them from their communities because of course, why wouldn't they wanna be here with us? Because we're so much better. Um, And so in Holt, there's an interim CEO at Holt International, which is one of the largest um, adoption uh, agencies. Um, and he basically, um, I was going to read his little quip and my computer, I'm sorry, just locked up here. But it's he has, um, one second, it says, his name is Dan Smith. And his uh, quote says, our mission still lies ahead of us. As a leader, I've always taken a multifaceted approach for increasing revenue, expanding services, and establishing long, long-term strategic visions. This approach will guide me putting the children, families, and partners we serve as my top priority every day. So, uh, so they're stakeholders and dividends. Increasing revenue, that was number one. Yeah. That's the point in that whole thing. Well, and it was just on, I'm sorry, this was just on Friday. Oh my gosh. Yes. And I, and I will, I, I can edit if you don't feel comfortable. You're familiar, Renee, with the fact that they have actual priceless yeah no i'm comfortable i you know 
I was told that my child would have cost $10,000 more had he been full Caucasian. I have to go on for just a moment. Yeah, that that's, I learned that five months after his adoption. I am so sorry. I, I think the first time you told me that I was so stunned, I just didn't even know how to react. And yeah. I, I have seen generally what happens is somebody will discover these price lists and they will publish them in, in social media. And then the agency involved will realize this is really fucked up. Yes. They will disappear their price list. Yeah. But somebody has saved it and it periodically will go around and people will say, oh, I'm sure this is just made up. And what I'll tell you, what, you know, there are many in this community now who are very active, who know to screen print websites, to screenshot all of this stuff, because as soon as you call it out, they scrub it and it's gone. And so that's exactly what we all need to be doing is calling it out and holding these people accountable for getting them to take a step back and literally Get them to think about really, truly the children, right? I mean, how do you talk about increasing revenue when you're talking about separating children from their families? Well, and when you're, when you're telling a parent that your child is worth less money, are we really that shocked when we see Black and Asian and Native American and Latino adoptees and people in the community calling out the white establishment for systemic racism in the removal of children from their families and for relating it back to I uh, you know the price tag that was put on black bodies before um, you know emancipation I, how can we how can we be offended by that when it's so blatantly true and and not be appalled i i see people invalidating you know experiences all the time and love is not enough Okay, it's not enough in same race adoptions. It's definitely not enough in transracial. And it's not enough in domestic adoptions and it's not enough in international adoptions. When you remove people from, anyway, I go on all day about that. So then we have same race adoption, which matching children used to be a very popular thing and people would pay more money and they still do pay more money to get a child with characteristics that they prefer and it can cost you anywhere up to like eighty thousand dollars usually to adopt a white female infant 
you know, someone was asking that on social media the, the other day, why, why is it the white female adoptee? What is it about that that is so, for lack of a better term, desired or, or valuable? You know, I, I don't have the answer for that. I don't know, Paige. You have, you have, I have a couple thoughts, but Paige, do you have a thought on that? And I, I really don't know either. And I mean, that's, that's what it was, <laughs> you know, but um, I don't know, in my parents' case, I mean, yeah, yeah, they came from that era too, where they wouldn't think of adopting a kid that wasn't a white kid. Um, and I know they were putting into adopt again, and they were going to get a boy the second time because they wanted a son and a daughter. And I have a feeling if a boy had been available in 1961, then they would have been putting it for a daughter the second time. You know what I mean? Um, because they, that's just what they wanted was a son and a daughter. and Didn't matter which one came first, as long as they had one of each, then they ended up getting pregnant on their own without having to go through the adoption and pretty much said, cancel that order. <laughs> and, you know, then they had my brother, you know, and so they ended up with one of each anyway. And um, they weren't, if my brother had turned out to be a girl, they weren't going to necessarily try for a third kid or try to adopt a third kid. They were just two kids, you know, that's, but that was their thinking in the sixties. So. Well, and I know that there still is from, you know, looking through some of the publications and the websites and things that the different adoption agencies and things have, there is mm -hmm. still very much, um, unless, you know, you're doing it as a very performative thing, there are like celebrities and influencers and, and people in the evangelical churches and stuff who do seek out uh, children of other races or abilities because there are people who will adopt disabled children as a very performative kind of act but among most people from what I can tell most couples would prefer to adopt their same race and since the majority of people adopting are white, and I, I think that part of the female white infant thing is, I think a lot of it stems from misogyny to us to an extent. I think that females are seen as more malleable, more yeah, cooperative. Probably easier yeah easier. we're less likely to wreck cars when we're 16 and things like that and yeah we're gonna be football we're gonna be easier i think yeah. a lot we're of cheaper times <laughs> you know and and i also wonder like i found out in my case my father did not want to adopt mm -hmm. so i wonder is there something in the male psyche that they want to have a boy, their own boy? Oh, I think there's definitely a thing like that, that, that it's a guy thing, and, you know, 
yeah and, I mean, and I can't... for the women too to please their man you know um especially yeah in in say our parents era that was a big thing yeah and I mean I don't know if it I don't know I, I can't say that this is the case it's just my feeling in looking at things that we're just seen as easier could be from to some extent so i don't know just like have a baby doll you can dress up which you don't think boys as much maybe they just think girls are cuter and going to be more fun i don't know i certainly don't want to think it's some kind of weird sexual thing don't want to think that yeah I see some of the the girls that get adopted as older foster kids and who end up in very precarious situations. And so as much as people may not want to talk about the purposes of adoption for sexual reasons or servants, that yeah. does happen that does that does happen there are children who are trafficked as yeah. servants or sexual reasons and yeah. do it under the umbrella of adoption and it happens mm-hmm. then you have single parent not every state will allow single parents to adopt some some do some do not i there are again incentives and it generally it does operate the same way where it's um, a sealed birth certificate and the other parent's name is simply left blank you know there is no indication it's like you just popped into existence just with one per- person uh, <laughs> and then you have couple adoption there are a lot of states that require that the adopters be two people generally married people i mm-hmm. um, there are states that still will not allow um, adoption by non-straight couples so um, and then there are other states that do i know that and some people will get irritated with me for saying this, but I do know that the adoption agency sees same-sex couples as a growth industry. And so they are very much promoting the narrative of building your family and non-traditional families. And they are pushing hard into the gay community to promote adoption as, um, as a way of having a family. Rather no. than rather than you know, the fact that you can still have children as a person who is not straight, you're just more likely to have to ask somebody you know to co-parent with you, rather than yeah. or be but, your donor. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. but they're very much pushing it, and I'm seeing more and more agencies talking about their involvement in that. Then you have uh, you have three different kinds of adoption that you'll see if you Google a, you know adoption closed, which most of us are closed adoptions, uh, semi-open and open. They refer to the level of contact and interaction during and after mm-hmm. the adoption. And there's a myth that going around that most adoptions today are open 
And when you delve into that, what you discover is that what they mean by open is that the adoption agencies are encouraging adoptive parents to let the adoptee know that they're adopted. That's not, a, that's just honesty. That's, <laughs> that's open, open, like you know who the other people are. Yeah, I always say that there's like different levels of open, right? Yeah. Just this whole thing is so complicated and complex. So um, there's the fully open with visits, regular visits, and a true relationship with the child where the parents, natural parents, biological, whatever you want to call them, birth first, can have a relationship with their child and it's completely open. And then there's the semi-open, which is updates and pictures, which in my opinion is called semi-closed um, because you don't have any contact with the child directly, right? So it's through the adoptive parents. Um, then there's mediated, right? Where the connection even between the adoptive parents and the mom is, is um, mediated through either an app or through an attorney or through an agency. So everything, for example, with Gladney, um, when, when my son's adoption, I was supposed to be getting information, had to go through Gladney. They had to send it to my son's adoptive parents and vice versa. And it would take them months. So by the time I sent them something, you know, it, it had already, I, I had already sent out the second package or they, you know, it was, it's so silly. So the services, this whole thing is really a facade. And, you know, the fact of the whole openness thing and, you know, making sure it stays open, there's just, you know, listen, the fact is, is that these moms are relinquishing due to financial crisis. They do not have the money. If you want to enforce an open adoption agreement and you happen to live in a state where a the agency actually filed the post-adoption contact agreement because sometimes they don't even file them like they're supposed to another trick of the trade and then you know if she wants to go ahead and enforce that uh, the relationship immediately goes sour as soon as she tries to file something because now they're being forced to do something that they don't want to do that is if she ends up finding the money to hire an adoption attorney, because you can't just hire a family law attorney. Let's face it. Adoption law is its own line of business, just like any other law. And you have to have someone who knows the ropes. And so trying to find an adoption attorney to take that case when they do adoptions is for that, you know, uh, attorney to commit, in my opinion, professional suicide. Yeah. They're killing future business. So all of this, again, is just, in my opinion, a ploy for uh, and a carrot to, you know, dangle in front of moms to say, you're going to get to, you know, see your kid. You're going to get to have visits. You're going to get pictures when nothing can ever prepare you for what it's like to not be with your baby or your child. And pictures are just sorry, not going to cut it, in my opinion. Well, and it's, I mean, Paige, when you hear open adoption, what, what do you think that looks like? Oh, I know what it's, 
supposed to look like, but yeah, I think it's all relative and it's all, yeah, let's define this. We need to get, I mean, everything needs to be, you can put everything down in writing and it should be, but that doesn't mean it's always going to be honored. You know, it's the trust issues there are, you know, so yeah. Well, yeah. you know, somebody has to say, let's face it, is best interest of the child. And as soon as somebody says that, yeah. bada bing, bada boom, you know, yeah. and who uses that? Right? Well, and, and that too can literally be all relative because what one person thinks is that's in the best interest of the kid is to totally cut them off. I mean, you'd have to have a pretty extremely evil parents for that and other family members in that family or you know what's best for the child to have contact but then don't cut them off down the road you know two years later when you decide you're going to move to australia or something you know i mean it's like divorced parents i guess go through something too like if one parent say ends up having getting a job transfer and moving across the country and then what do you do with the kids and getting them back and forth between parents you know well yeah. and I think there's that power differential because the parents who have you know the adoptive parents have physical custody of the child yeah and they generally have the money and the resources and the family members of the child do not have physical possession they often do not have the kind of resources that the adoptive family has and from what I've seen, and I, this may not be true, but what I've seen and heard from people is that for the most part, even adoptions that start out pretty open tend to close at the age where the child can begin to ask questions about why they live with their adoptive parents why they don't get to see mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or whatever, why they don't get to see those people on a regular basis. As soon as there is any sign of any kind of emo of what could be considered emotional distress for the child, rather than helping the child navigate that in a healthy way, they simply say it's better that you just aren't a part of the child's life anymore. Yeah. And, and so open adoptions, I've, I'm sure we have all talked to hundreds of other adoptees at this point in our lives or other parents of, you know, children lost to adoption. I have only heard of one adoption that I would consider to have begun open and stayed open. And it was a very, very special set of circumstances. And I know in the UK, they have a letterbox system, which is very similar to what you were talking about, letters and pictures. And so the UK government kind of promotes this whole idea that it's going to be open because there's going to be a letterbox and the parent can send letters and photos to the social workers. And then the social workers can get letters and stuff. And then there's this back and forth exchange. And they're saying that that is you know, better than what they're seeing happen. And that is children who are using social media to find their families. And then that's becoming distressing for the adoptive parents. 
and the child is acting out. And so rather than look at adoption and go, maybe the system isn't everything we're saying it is, they're just saying that parents need to do a better job of policing their children's activities online. That's their solution. They're just like, parents need to be more aware of what their kids are doing online. I'm like, really? That's your, that's your response. Okay, super impressive. So then you have late discovery, which is the opposite of open. Uh, so you can have a closed adoption, which Paige, you had a closed adoption, yes? Okay, yeah. so. Closed, again, it could be all relative because my parents weren't aware when, or they conveniently, it slipped their mind that when I became 21, I could access my records. But up until the point of turning 21, it was closed. Okay. So you yeah. grew up knowing you were adopted, mm -hmm. and but you had no idea who your family was. Right. Yeah. No information. Well, what whatever little information we had was pretty sketchy and not necessarily all accurate. Okay. And no access till you were 21. Correct. 21, did you have the right to receive or just the right to apply? Both. Yeah. Yeah, I had the right to access and receive. If I sent them $20 certified check, they'd send me a big fat envelope. All right, because Paige was fortunate enough, it's sad that we have to put it that way, to be born and adopted in a state that allows her to do that. We were semi-open. Now we're pretty much completely open unless there's a letter of redaction in there, but um, that's what you call it, right? It's the, the, a contact veto or a, yeah, a redaction clause. Yeah. 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 So to me, then your state is still compromised because you don't yeah. have unrestricted access because people can still say, yeah, you're not allowed to have the information not allowed. Yeah. But I guess it's a, a, according to the statistics that have rolled out since we went as open as we are. There's so few redactions. Yeah. And that's Illinois, right? That it's Ohio. Ohio. I was like, I Ohio. always get Illinois and Ohio yeah. backwards, but yes. So for the most part, your state is is unrestricted to most adoptees. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I so I was the opposite. I'm a late discovery adoptee because here's one of the things about the laws about adoption. Getting back to those laws, there's no law that requires an adoptive parent to tell yeah. the child that they're adopted. Right. Now, I believe one of the reasons why the adoption industry had to create this fiction of openness is because when you promote transracial adoption or same-sex adoption, you cannot pretend but when you adopt, yeah. yeah, so, but there's, but, you know, those transracial adoptees, they still, you know, or same-sex couple adoptees, that doesn't mean they have a right to know who their parents are. It's simply, you just can't hide it. That's right. It. It's kind of, yeah, scientifically impossible <laughs> to hide it. I mean, unless you've got a, a relative from way back and all of a sudden a a flip of a, a gene or an allele 
you know, I guess it can happen, but it's pretty rare. My adoptive adopted brother was biracial, but my parents just said he tanned easily. Yeah. So, so that was the explanation for why he looked so different from, from the rest of us. Cause he had these crystalline blue eyes and and almost like really, really dark brown hair. And he tanned, he was, he stayed kind of a light brown all the time, but that was, their, their, that was their explanation is that he just tanned really easily. So, and I know, other, I know other biracial adoptees who primarily were told they were Italian. Yeah. Like they yeah, grew that's... up knowing that they were adopted, but they were told they were Italian. And then yeah. they found out that they were native American or Latino. Ooh. So, wow. So yeah, that was my, my adopted brother. I, but we were not told that we were adopted and there's no law that would require adopted parents um, who adopted from the UK that they tell an adoptee that they were adopted. And even if there were laws, who do you think is enforcing those laws? Right. Yeah, exactly. You enforce that. Yeah. Is anybody going to actually show up at your house and go, Hey, yeah, you you page in Ohio, and she's twelve. Have you told her yet? Yeah, yeah did, I don't. Did you? There's adoptees that go around knocking on doors. No, <laughs> there's nobody. You know, we're that not checks. even told. We're not even told what the procedures are to apply for our own information. Right, we have a right to. So somebody's yeah. gonna. Yeah, I didn't know until I watched a TV talk show. Yeah, a uh, local TV talk show, yeah. and I was. 25 turning 26 at the time that the show aired and um we're sitting here in this living room and um we actually uh recorded the show and watched it later that night when we were home from work and um went oh my god (laughs) I thought I thought I never could know it was a great big the biggest no of the world and then it was like no but yeah and I found out by (laughs) accident so it's yeah Yeah. so late discovery the laws do affect whether or not we even know and if we do know because it can't be hidden or because they're actually honest with us and tell us we are adopted nobody's telling us what the laws are we have to go out and find our own are yeah yeah and then we have a form of adoption that just makes me cringe so hard we have these snowflake babies and i don't know if you're familiar with that term but snowflake babies are frozen embryos that are the leftovers from in vitro fertilization attempts that the parents of the embryo can opt to donate those embryos for implantation for adoption I find this horrifying on so many levels. There are no long-term studies that I'm aware of on the effects of freezing an embryo and then giving birth to that embryo. I do not know that there are, that it's been around long enough for them to have done longitudinal studies on the possible health effects to a person who's 
origins are a freezer and you can have identical siblings that you are born a decade or more apart. And there are companies that promote embryo adoption. It is legal. I don't think it should be. I think it should be illegal. And if you don't like it and you listen to this, I don't care. <laughs> and, and there's even a podcast, and I'm not even going to say the name of it because I'm not going to advertise this garbage, but it is all about promoting the marvelous blessing of embryo adoption. So, damn. <laughs> this is legal. And yeah. legally, the person who gives birth to the child that results from this embryo can legally say, I am this child. I carried this child. I gave birth to this child. This child's name, my name is on that child's birth certificate. My partner, if I have one, their name is on the certificate as the child's parent. We are under no obligation to ever tell this person that, except that a lot of people are super proud of the work they're doing by adopting embryos. So they will trot these kids out like show ponies at pro-life rallies. Um, somebody stop me. <laughs> Yeah, it's you know, heads and then you, explode. you know, you can't hide the DNA. I mean, imagine somebody being in that situation and being a snowflake baby. I'm using quotes in the air yeah. <laughs> and and doing DNA. Talk about just completely being blown away, especially if they do it without you know any um involvement with their parents who raised them right they have knowledge of their actual origins right no nothing and they come to find that find this out talk about a identity crisis yeah and then you have anonymous donor conception which you could argue is not a form of adoption if the non-donor parent is considered a social parent and not on the person's birth certificate. Because they don't always formally adopt the child. If, if the couple is married and the person with the uterus carries the child using their own egg, if they're married, most states, all that's required for the male partner to be on the birth certificate is for him to acknowledge paternity because they're married. Yeah. So and even, yeah. And even in, I don't even think they have to acknowledge parentage um, it, because most states, again, to your point that if they're married, that's it. He's the legal father. And that is the way um, that it is with unmarried mothers that the father actually has to acknowledge that parentage. They have to sign that form in the hospital. And of course, you know, when there's an adoption, they don't want the father around anywhere near that form. Um, yeah. 
But yeah, so with that, it it's just a given, and that is the most majority of the state. I have not, I don't know a state off the top of my head where it is not the case where if the mother, uh, if the if the woman or if the person who gives birth uh, is married, legally married, that is the the father. Yeah. There's no yeah. Yeah, nothing that has to be done for that. Yeah, I think I think Georgia still. I think there are a few states in the South that still require the father to acknowledge paternity in order for them to be on the birth certificate. Because my husband had to sign a document in Georgia stating that he acknowledged paternity when he filled out our son's certificate. Now, that was 34 years ago. But it's my understanding from talking to people and looking at the law that there still are some states that require that. I, but yeah, with donor conceived people, if you're already in a relationship and again, with donor conception, because it's anonymous and there's very little to no regulation of the donor conception industry. So there's no guarantee that you won't find out you have a hundred siblings or more. Oh, like the, what was it? The doctor in Indiana? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Want to yeah. guess? Want to guess where my adoptive parents were from? Oh no! Same school, same medical school. <laughs> yeah, and there were some ethical issues with my adoption. I so yeah, the doctor in Indiana. There have been others. I'm here in California because California makes billions of dollars every year off anonymous donor conception. Our lovely governor just vetoed a bill that would have called for more oversight of the industry because he said it wouldn't make a significant enough difference. So he vetoed it. Yeah, this just happened like last week. So so let's just not do anything. I know. Let's not do anything. Let's not acknowledge that you could date a sibling. You could marry a sibling or an uncle or an aunt. You could, you know, like you could discover a, a bunch of these people have discovered that their donors were mentally ill people. Yeah. Strong, strong genetic components yeah. to the mental illness that was passed on. And all of these things are supposed to be screened for at the time of the donation. And even the name of it rubs me the wrong way because my neighbor was making like 10 grand every time she made a donation so yeah so there's no requirement there's no law that you tell a person that that they are donor conceived and because anonymous donor conception is legal there's nothing that requires there there's no way other than dna for a donor conceived person to discover who their parent is because they aren't given the name. It's like those horrific safe haven baby boxes where you can just uh, anonymously drop a kid. There's no documentation. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so there's that. And then the last form of adoption that I wanted to talk about today, I is not really technically adoption, but it is a concept of childcare that I think most adoptees are actually 
pushing for. And that is, it's called kafala. And I apologize if I'm saying it wrong, because like I said before, I don't speak Arabic, but it's a sponsorship or guardianship that is the norm in Islamic countries where people agree to care for a child in their family for no remuneration. They don't receive any money to, to do it. And they don't, from what I know, they don't pay money to do it. They agree to take care of a child and the child retains their own identity. Their identity is not closed off from them. It's not sealed away. They know who they are. They can maintain um, kinship connections. It's, it's more in line with what we used to do in this country when a child was born and their immediate parents couldn't care for them. Somebody would step up and say, I'll take care of, of this child. Mm -hmm. I, come up with me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do know orphanages did exist. I grew up across the street from one. Mm -hmm. So I know that they did exist. I, but those were the extreme cases. This was not people going out and advertising for babies. This was not people going out and pursuing young women who, you know, were pregnant and asking them, do you want to give up your kid? <laughs> you know, it, it was a very different circumstance. Uh, so I don't, so were either of you familiar with that term? Like I need to find somebody who is actually an expert in it to try and interview them and, and find out more, but. I had not heard the term before, I guess the concept, because it's very similar to kinship, or I guess it's almost like you can sponsor a kid, but you don't necessarily adopt them. Yeah. You yeah. Know. I just found an interesting, um, nonprofit on Facebook. Uh, it's called hijab for a cause. And they have a post from 2021, um, that delves into exactly what you just covered, that it's, um, sponsorship, uh, child name stays the name of the biological parent, um, or the biological father, sorry, not the uh, adoptive father. Okay. And so it's, um, it basically, you've, you've covered it. So everything that you said is. Oh, is, okay. It's nice yeah. to know I understood it more or less. Yeah. I, now I am, I do know that the idea of something from Islam may be extremely unpopular with a country that has a lot of issues with uh, Islamophobia, but, you know, we don't throw out every concept because we don't agree with some other aspect of, or we shouldn't. So hopefully today we've kind of done a quick survey of the different types of adoption. Cause I think that a lot of people have a very limited view of what adoption is either poor impoverished person giving this 
tremendous gift to a more deserving couple or abused, abandoned child with, you know, drug addicted parents and abusive parents. There's just this kind of binary of either terrible people who don't deserve to have a child or poor person who doesn't deserve to have a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because, and so it it's a perpetuation of a stigma and it also reinforces the idea that we as adoptees are supposed to be grateful because, you know, undeserving parents, better parents, I when that's not always the case. Right. And I think better is all relative. Yeah. I mean, I say because, well, my birth mother was deceased, so I never really could, I know of her and about her, but I never met her, right? My birth father, I did know. I mean, they were different kinds of people, but they were not, I wouldn't say that from what I do know that anybody was a better person than anybody else. I don't think any of them were bad, evil people. Nobody was, you know, a criminal in jail that had shot up a bunch of people in a public place or done things like that. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just different they led different lives yeah and you know so yeah better is all relative yeah now I like for me my mother was not in a position to be able to raise me she was a teenager in a foreign country she had no money no job right time at that time single mothers who weren't married often couldn't rent housing they couldn't get jobs Yeah. yeah And her parents were ashamed. They were very religious people and they were ashamed of her behavior. My paternal, my father was not going to raise me. He just wasn't that kind of person, but his parents were, and they would have raised me. And they ended up being uh, highly educated middle you know middle to upper middle class people Mm -hmm. who could have afforded to raise me but because of the nature of adoption they weren't even given the opportunity right and and, you know people say it's changed but Renee has it really changed all that much it has not all of this is the same you know they want mom to be isolated they don't want that discussion to happen you know so that grandparents can step in and none of that is it's all you know really done the same the laws Mm -hmm. have not changed over many years they've gotten more restrictive from a natural family's perspective so they're removing revocation periods they're shortening them they're uh, making states more adoption friendly. That could be a number of things, um, you know, and all of this, and then touting the open adoption thing. You know, they can't do, uh, they can't use the same tactics that were used in the baby scoop era. The whole single parenting thing is not the shame thing anymore. But um, 
they're still using and they had to, you know, change things. I call it the, we moved from the baby scoop era to the persuasive coercion era. So it's all about this deception, um, not giving all the information, for example, sealed birth certificates and mm -hmm. what is the adoption process after, you know, after relinquishment papers are signed? What is the court process? What are the yeah. steps? Yeah, um, there's the misinformation and the lack of giving information and not everybody knows to even ask. Right, right. It's deception and omission and and extremely misleading. And it's all in the name of, of money. Yeah, and they've dressed it up as this moral and social good. And they've also dressed it up as an entitlement. You're entitled to be a parent. You deserve to be a parent. Yeah. Right. And the fact remains is that they're, they're to your point, marketing to people who want a baby. That is what this mm -hmm. industry is about. It, the best interest of the child is not front and center. They pose it as, as such, right. With two parent households, all of that kind of thing, but really digging into the mental health facts uh, and, and disclosing all of that while the mom is making that. So her decision you know, she can really truly say, is my intention going to be enough to outweigh the impact of what the separation is going to do to my child? Yeah. And she's not given that in my point, in my right. opinion, she's not. No, I don't think so. And I, and I think, you know, didn't really touch on it much, but we've set up a system where it's legal to do fundraising to adopt it's legal to do pre-birth matching in most states it's legal to put together videos and advertising campaigns to tell a person in crisis that here's what we can give your child pick us hey pick me yeah, yeah they've yeah. set up a competitive system where people are competing for children where you're where you are guilting people in crisis by saying why would you want to expose your child to poverty when i can give them my my spouse is a chef and i'm a lawyer and we have a house here and we have another cabin on this lake and we take yearly vacations to Europe and your child will have music lessons and private school education and blah, 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 blah. What are you going to give that child? And they you tell them all love, you have is love, right? If you love that child. Why would you deny them this? And the thing is, it's legal. This is legal. This kind of propaganda, per persuasive coercion, the denial of access, the layers and hoops that adoptees have to go through to access their information, the, um, the deceptive practices, the anonymity, you know, with donor conception, all of these things are legal. They are codified. They are systemic. This is what people are up against. You know, people in crisis 
are up against, what adoptees are up against, we're dealing with a system that marginalizes us by law. They create a marginalized group and they call it good. And it's, it's crazy. It's just, so when you hear somebody saying, I resent, you know, adoption. And then of course we have to throw in our disclaimer, but I didn't have a bad adoption experience. I love my adoptive parents. They are wonderful people, but I resent that I don't have access to my information. I feel the trauma of the separation. I wish I'd had the genetic mirroring. I'm exhausted from trying to get my own information. We're advocating for an end to erasing our identities, an end to barring us from access to our own documents, an mm -hmm. end to coercive practices, an end to law to the lies. Yeah, and, all the dishonesty. Yeah, and just the creation of a system that respects the agency of the person that actually is in the best interest of the child that ends an exploitative industry that treats children as a commodity I, and a change in the narrative that treats children like they're disposable units of income or treats adults like children yeah perpetually right oh yeah and then and that wants you and other parents to just disappear like you never existed yeah that's exactly how i feel i feel erased yeah they just want you to run away and be quiet yeah and pretend that you don't you served your purpose and now yeah. you need to exit the stage yeah and and they want adoptees to you know you you benefited from being adopted so now we just need you to be quiet and just be happy yeah, maintain the maintain the fiction, and I call it the facade. Yeah, right. So there's just a lack of awareness, and I don't know if I've been even halfway coherent today. But you ladies have been great, so thank you. I'm just like I'm gonna listen to this and hope that when I publish it, that I don't cringe at my own voice. But uh, thank you both very much. Yeah. Now, this was great to kind of break down and it was nice to have some different perspectives and different experiences, right? To, yeah. To touch on. Renee, I don't think I'd ever met you before. Yeah. Definitely not in person and not even online. Yeah. Directly anyway. So. Yeah. 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 So this was great. I was like, oh, I can do this today. Yeah. <laughs> build relationships, build connections and one of the beautiful things about the internet is that it's allowing these different parts of what they call the adoption constellation. I don't know right. how I feel about that, but to actually connect and have conversations and we're still on the recording ladies. So, so I'm just encouraging people out there to build the same kind of connections, have the same kind of conversations. Discussions and inform. Yeah. 
That's what it's all about. You know, I say these things and I've, I've told you this too, right? In the past, when we talked, I said the adoption industry didn't plan on DNA, didn't plan on us finding each other, and it didn't plan on us all coming together and doing something about it. And that's what's going to be the most powerful is that we are all coming together and we are, you know, talking the same talk and saying, listen, there needs to be this truth. There needs to be this transparency and there needs to be change. This has to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And we've got an international adoptee, a domestic adoptee, and we have a mother and we're from different, slightly different eras because your son is still very young. And yeah. yeah, so we've got a historic perspective. We have a current perspective. We're not talking about past practices. We're talking, yeah, yeah we're talking about current laws on the books, current practices. It- that haven't been changed for years and years, decades. Yeah, exactly. So thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for anybody who hung in there and listened to us today. And uh, please let me know if you have listened and you would like to have a conversation, get in touch. Thank you. Thank you.